0: Since our colleague, the late Dr. Li Wenliang, sounded the first alarms of a novel coronavirus last December, COVID-19 has developed into a global pandemic. Not since the flu of 1918 has our society experienced this degree of threat to our health and to our happiness. This is a unique moment in our history, and we here at The Surgery Set are doing what we know how to do, which is to say podcasting, to help. We're telling the stories of this time from the people on the front lines, in these uncertain times. We want you to feel informed. We want you to feel supported. We want to give you the tools to be resilient in the face of what may be the hardest few months of our lives. And we want to remind you frequently and forcefully that you are awesome. These are the stories from the front line of this global crisis, featuring visits with the heroes who are making a difference when we need them the most, and ideas for how to stay well and balanced as we learn to live in social distance. From the department of surgery at the university of wisconsin this is the front lines of COVID, a surgery set series i'm jonathan kohler a pediatric surgeon trying my best welcome if you made a list of the most essential workers in this crisis journalists are toward the top as we live in physical distance We are all desperate for news to help us understand where we are and where we're going. But much like in healthcare, the painful irony of this moment for journalists is that the same pandemic that's made them more essential than ever is threatening to put them out of business. I came to medicine from journalism. In the third grade, my best friend and I produced a school newspaper for Dora Moore Elementary which only lasted one issue, but was called More News, which is, to this day, my most successful play on words. In high school, I wrote opinion pieces and theater reviews for the school paper. In college, I was the general manager of the Brown Daily Herald, one of the oldest daily college papers out there and after college while applying to medical school i was the healthcare reporter for the standard times in new bedford massachusetts i didn't know it at the time but while i was an undergraduate at brown i shared the campus with someone who would go on to be one of my true journalistic heroes josh marshall was completing his phd in history there the first step in a journey that would make him one of the foremost political reporters in the country it was at another time of upheaval the day after the 2000 election that I remembered hearing about a website called Talking Points Memo that had its finger on the pulse of the federal government. I remember visiting the site for the first time, in the computer lab next to histology labs in medical school. I was immediately hooked. At that point, I think it was just Josh, or pretty nearly so. In the ensuing 20 years, the site's grown to become a small, scrappy, but fully-fledged news site and an incubator for some of the foremost journalists of our time. But what's remained constant in the 20 years that I've been a devoted daily reader is Josh Marshall's voice, thoughtful, brave, funny, and informed by the context that only a doctorate in history can give an understanding of current events. This is our 100th episode of the surgery set. The original plan had this happening in the fall, but with the rise of COVID-19, we moved from making an episode every two weeks to making an episode every two days, and here we are. Celebrating this milestone in the middle of a pandemic, which is a good time to celebrate, really. I'm incredibly proud of the work we're doing on this podcast, in this department, at this school, in this state, in this country, in this world. So why not celebrate a little? And today that celebration means bringing my great hero, Josh Marshall, to the podcast. His site, TalkingPointsMemo.com, and his podcast, The Josh Marshall Podcast, have, like us, devoted themselves to understanding the pandemic. It's been fascinating to watch the site that helped me hone my worldview about events outside the hospital apply its same rigor to understanding the world of the hospital. They've immersed themselves in epidemiology, immunology, and critical care, and almost overnight become one of the best sources I've seen for information at the intersection of the pandemic and the policy we need to get us through it. Let's go to Josh. Josh Marshall, it is just an absolute thrill to have you here on our uh, Century edition of the surgery set. Thank you so much for joining us. Where are you coming to us from?
1: At the moment, I am actually in Bedford, New York, which is in Westchester County. It's a little town. I, I normally, I live in New York City and I was in New York City until March 17th, which was right around kind of when things really went on lockdown. My family and I were all set to just kind of lock down and we we we'd been doing that ourselves for four or five days and then some friends of ours invited us to stay with them basically outside the city we kind of jumped at the chance i mean partly for kind of obvious reasons new york city is is kind of a scary place to be <laughs> to be right now but i think the 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 big thing was just that we have a very kind of blessed existence but a a a blessed existence living in Manhattan is still a pretty small amount of space, uh, yeah. and we have you know we have two kids in a in a in a small apartment about 1,100 square feet. So just the ability to be able to go outside even during lockdown, and I just mean like you know go into a front yard or something like that was a big deal. So that's where I am. We're probably I don't know exactly how how far, maybe 30 40 miles outside of outside of New York City.
0: Yeah, it really seems like. I mean, people talk about us in healthcare being the heroes in this. And there are definitely cases where that's true. But I think there are a lot of cases too, where, you know, we're just kind of doing our jobs and our day to day life is a little different. We wear more face masks, but I I really think the unsung heroes in this are the single moms with three kids in a walk-up apartment in New York city who have like no option to get out. Yeah, I mean, it is just incredible.
1: Kind of to your point. Most of the doctors and many of the nurses live, I, I wouldn't say privileged lives, but at least you know make decent I mean, some of the doctors make very decent livings, but even the nurses make relative to across the population, a decent livings. But one of the things that this has brought home to me is how much the infrastructure of a hospital relies on all sorts of people who make very low incomes the orderlies the people who clean the hospitals you know all just all of those people who keep the whole thing running and and certainly in New York City and I and I imagine everywhere else in the country those people make low wages they are facing just as much in most cases danger of exposure to yeah, you know not by, by going by going into work every day and an additional thing to your point is, I would imagine most of the, you know, most of the doctors probably have the financial wherewithal to deal with, you know, childcare when the schools are closed down and everything. But you just have lots of people who the sort of the, you know, the infantry for lack of a better word of a hospital is people making low wages, exposing themselves to all sorts of danger. And at the same time, having to grapple with, all right. what what do i do with my kids you know and 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 in a in a non epidemic moment the sort of a logical thing for a lot of people would be all right you know i'm going to have the grandparents take care of them right. but obviously here that's not really an option because the grandparents are vulnerable yeah um so it's it's there's a lot of heroic action taking place that we all see or see from a distance if yeah. we're lucky
0: I I think I would add to that list of, you know, essential people who are not pulling down surgeon salaries, the journalists. Obviously, you run a a small but thriving journalistic shop. I mean, what's been your experience with reporters out there, you know, trying to to get the story on this, trying to keep us all connected? I mean, I think the essential role of journalists in, in our society has been really illustrated by this moment when we're all stuck inside we're all experiencing the same thing and we're all desperate to know what's going on and we're turning to the press to do that at a time when you know the normal way that the press is funded advertising is completely falling apart so you're ever more essential and ever more insecure right so
1: i think you know normally the way tpm works we have offices in dc and new york and normally our new york office is basically an in-office operation occasionally people will go into the field but it's mainly you know phone reporting in dc we do a lot of work on capitol hill all the stuff you'd expect pretty early on we lock down people going up to capitol hill kind of doing anything in the field that could that could uh, endanger them, and we have been remote in both of our offices since March 11th, which is pretty early, certainly for the rest of the country. But even in even in New York, it was a little less than a week before things locked down. So in that sense, we are working at home is relatively easy for us as an organization, since a lot of what we normally do is at our desks in our offices. Certainly for in New York, which was which is where most of our operation is. On the financial side, we have also been really blessed because for reasons wholly apart from anything to do with COVID, we have been shifting our business model over the last four or five years to be mainly based on subscriptions. And that is just an absolute lifesaver now because as you said, the advertising industry is being hit unbelievably hard right now there's a lot of reasons for that you know the main one is and i remember this from the financial crisis in 2008 9 10 that for most business advertisers when you are in a crisis advertising is the easiest thing to cut you know that may have some bad effects but if you look at like okay rent salaries <laughs> you know, utilities, advertising, it's the first thing to go. So th- that is, advertising is under great stress. And and I think we're seeing that news organizations that are mainly advertising dependent are in severe crisis right now. We are lucky that only about 20% of our revenues now come from advertising, you know, pre-COVID. So that means that even with a sharp downturn, that is a survivable amount of revenue loss for us it's i mean it's not great it sucks but yeah. it's not existential so we have been really pretty lucky and blessed kind of on both fronts that we're not seeing i mean you know knockwood uh, so far no one who works for TPM has been sick from covid and being in new york city that's saying something right a lot mm-hmm. of people a lot of people are infected And we are definitely in a very cautious crisis footing about the business side of our operation. But we're cautiously optimistic that we will, you know, that we will get through this.
0: What do you see in the broader media landscape now? I mean, not everyone's going to get
1: through this. Five, six years ago, about 95% of our revenue came from advertising. And... If that were the case today, I think we would immediately be having to lay off employees to just, just absolutely no choice. I mean, yeah. for our operation, salaries and benefits are, I can't remember exactly, but, you know, something like 70% of the expenses. So there's just nothing else to cut, right? Yeah. I mean, if you take, for us, if you take salaries and payrolls, rent on on two leased properties, the remainder is maybe maybe 10% or 20, I, you know, it's very small. And you have lots of publications around the country that were already in severe crisis to start with, particularly local news organizations, you know, local papers, local media. And when I think about local news, usually I, I'm thinking of really local news, like the small town paper in a, you know, in a town with like 50,000 residents. Or, or fewer, something like that. Yeah. And those, it's brutal there. But there's been—I uh, I can't remember the exact details—but the Cleveland Pl- Plain Dealer has is now down to like, I think it's under ten reporters, and they've they've just cut a bunch of people during the epidemic. So it's not just kind of like small papers, you know, that basically small communities rely on for you know to go to the school board meeting or the or the city council meeting or something like that. Cleveland is a, you know, Cleveland's a big city, right? And it also has not just Cleveland; it's the whole kind of, you know, Greater Cleveland area. So yeah. it's it, it's brutal, and you also have a lot of digital publications like TPM that were already stretched thin, and there's no way they can survive it without very painful cuts. If they can, you know, survive it at all, so it's it's really bad for the the media, kind of at all levels except. If you are you know in one of these sort of lucky niches where you're not quite as affected as as everyone else, I and mean, I think that you know the big papers have uh, i think a decent amount of resilience for this you know new york Times washington post wall street journal but it's 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 brutal it's brutal, and a lot of a lot of news organizations are not going to exist when this is done
0: it's just such a painful irony because like they've never been needed more, like this local micro level mm-hmm. news is what is gonna be so important to all of us. Yep. I mean, I've been really struck by the, the, the work that TPM has done. When I think about TPM and, and I've been an obsessive reader might be the rest, best way to put it for the past 20 years, I think about a very specific type of journalism that is deep dive, but it, it's a, it takes a sort of a broad survey of an issue um, and then deep dives and very esoteric small points that other people kind of gloss over or miss. It's been absolutely fascinating to watch you apply the TPM model to COVID-19. Can you talk a little bit about like, how, how have you identified the right resources and how have, how have you pivoted from being a political news site to being a site that is, you know, sometimes getting into sort of nitty gritty of ventilator management?
1: I think a couple of things. I think to a great extent, this is, this is part of our model. And in, like, one thing I think about is during Hurricane Katrina that you have these topics come up that we have no pre existing knowledge of, uh, we know nothing about. And a key part of our model is drawing on our readers to find expertise among our, our committed readers who, who allow us to come up to speed quickly on a new topic. And again, I always think of, of Katrina because you know, in, within within hours, probably of when that story, or within a couple of days of, of when the story was kind of coming into focus, I suddenly was in touch with probably half a dozen readers who were, in some sense, part of the national weather and meteorological bureaucracy in the federal government who really knew this stuff. And now, in some cases. They knew kind of tips that were, you know, kind of news tips that we could that we could work with. But in most cases, it was it was just a matter of giving us an understanding of what was happening. So not like secret information, but just being able to talk with people who knew the stuff. And with this, it's obviously this is it's very complicated because it's subject matter that is entirely outside of our domain. It's subject matter in which even the experts have very limited understanding because it's new and so and so that adds a whole other layer of complexity and the third thing is that if you know if if we're talking about Katrina as the as the you know kind of parallel if if we cover the news incorrectly for our audience outside of Louisiana that's bad. Obviously we're putting out bad information and it's, and it would reflect very poorly on us, but it probably doesn't have any like life or death implications beyond that. It's just sort of bad in the ordinary sense. And in in this case, obviously, potentially bad information has dire life and death implications for everybody. So I think how we approach this, how I've approached this from the beginning is that there's one skill that we have that is very relevant for this. And that is the skill of diving into information and figuring out who the people are who have real expertise and helping readers that way. Because you just have a flood of information. You have a lot of misinformation and just, you know, bogus information. But you also have a lot of information from people who are, are well-meaning, but don't really have a, 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 a solid grounding of what they're talking about. And so that is a skill. It is one that is relatively applicable across domains. And it's something that, that's something that we, where we can provide a service of, of, of basically saying, these are really knowledgeable people. These are people who, who, you know not trying to do anything bad but they're they're less knowledgeable and so that is sort of that's kind of our superpower it's a limited <laughs> superpower but that's kind of our thing and 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 that has been sort of our first approach using that skill to focus people on sources of information that are reliable credentialed etc and then after that there are certain areas where our existing kind of reporting skill set is valuable and that's and and most of that is in the wh- where this lines up with government action and understanding federal bureaucracies and stuff like that that's where th- that's where we do have pre-existing knowledge so so we've tried to focus on that and then we look for areas where we think there's a story and we have skills that allow us to elucidate it for readers. And in those cases, some amount of that is just finding experts who we can you know, rely on. And in other cases, it's a key part of any any journalism and certainly a key part here where you say, okay, there's a question here. And this particular question, we think we have the skills to kind of get a handle on it and and so one of the one of the areas that that has been very i mean grim but interesting to us and one that we've tried to focus on is this question of excess mortality beyond sort of official statistics about people being sick of covid-19 or dying from covid-19 and that is a case where after the fact you will need to look at you know how many people died in March 2020 in the United States, and then compare that to, okay, how many people died in March on average for the previous 10 years? Yeah. And I think it is very clear, based on what's come out of Europe and what is ne- is starting to come out of the United States, that number for March 2020 and, Mar- and April 2020, and unfortunately probably for a few more months, will be much higher than those previous months, and much higher even when you add in the number of people who have supposed to have died of COVID-19. And that's not, and just to be clear for your listeners, that's not a matter of like a cover-up or anything. That that's a matter of the official data does not catch everyone. And and some of that clearly is people dying from COVID-19 who are not showing up in those numbers. And there's a lot of reasons why that happens. The the biggest of which, and this is probably familiar to your To your listeners, who I take it are, you know, tend to be in in the healthcare profession, that right now or until the last week, but still mainly now, people do not show up as dying from COVID 19 unless they have a laboratory test that came back positive. So even in many cases where the clinician probably knows the person died of COVID 19, they're not being recorded that way for these tallies that we see in the news. So that that is kind of a question that we felt we can kind of get get a handle on journalistically. And then there are others that are more medical that we've that we've had to be very cautious about, but we still thought there was something that we could help our readers and our 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 readers understand understand better what's what's happening.
0: Yeah, I mean I think that's such a great point. Like it's if if we just relied on the the numbers that come out from the government, right? You could just look at government websites and see those numbers, but we're we're dependent on people who are thinking critically about this, who are engaged in the discussion outside of the sort of standard lines of communication to to ask that question like, okay, you say X number of people have died, like what what are you actually counting there and how do we get to the bottom of that? I mean, just such a, a beautiful distillation of the role of independent journalism in this process. I mean, it's just so cool. Before we go, I just wanna ask, how are you staying sane in all of this? Like wh- any tips or tricks for pulling away from the news? I mean I'd, I find myself like on Twitter every three minutes, and it yeah, I, good I, for me
1: I definitely have too, and I think this may be a little different for me than a lot of people since part of my story was you know it was in New York City where the crisis was more was was more intense, but i I found that for the first two or three weeks of this, the intensity of the crisis allowed me not to think about a lot of other things. And so I wasn't getting stir crazy because I I didn't have time to think about being stir crazy. I I was trying to I mean A I was trying to keep my family safe, right? And B I was trying to navigate this for the company that I run, and then I was just trying to keep a handle on the story because, you know, to me there's no comparison to what healthcare workers in these hospitals are doing they're literally putting their lives at risk to do this thing even to the extent their lives aren't at risk there's an immense emotional toll you people working 16-hour days but the one place that is sort of has been sort of you know clarifying to me or allowed me to kind of focus is that you know my profession is being a journalist and this is a case where there is a huge need for information, for people to get information, to have reliable information. And that is what I do. And so at a very, very limited sense, I can sort of relate to, and again, no comparison about the sacrifice and you know willing assumption of personal risk, but at the level of, this is a case where journalism is really needed. I have readers that rely on us and this is what i do so that provides a certain kind of clarity in the storm. I would say that in the last maybe 10 days, as I kind of got used to this new normal and maybe felt a little less sense of threat to my family, threat to my company, you know, these kind of things, then I did start saying like, all right, my whole, my whole life has been turned upside down. What the <laughs> fuck right? You're like, what, are, what is going on here? And all the kind of the totally mundane things, I mean, for me being in my own home, uh, being able to go to my gym, all these kind of things kind of catch up with you, and you're like, "Wow, what 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 is happening here?" And I would say that I definitely tell people, even though it is sort of a statement against interest, that you need to be able to take some time away from the news, just because the news is grim. It's hard. The only good news is relative good news. You know, going from like. 800 people a day dying in New York City to hopefully 600. But that's like, that's not good news, right? I certainly know from my personal experience that inundating yourself with crisis news, which I'm not new to, I've been, I've done it in many contexts over the years, although this is on a, on a new scale. that has a, That has an effect on your mental health. It just does. And I've learned that I need to try to do some things to limit it but there's not that much that's just kind of what i do again it's a hell of it's a hell of a lot easier here in this little desk than it is like you know with people like spraying COVID 19 into my face constantly in in an er but that's again sort of a professional responsibility and i try to in some readers who i've spoken to about this that the news that you need to know today To protect your physical health it'll probably get to you even if you're not on twitter for the next hour and it really is important to get some distance because like i said even in sort of fun times the news is intense and can be a little corrosive but the news is all bad now and i think there's a level of sort of news self-care that we all need to practice and certainly for non-news people can practice it more because it can be too much. You know, it can have some negative effects on your on your mental health and your sense of balance and everything. So that's the one thing I try to convey to people. I am certainly just personally right now in the process, and I'd say I've been in this process for the last week or so, of trying to create some new normal yeah. for myself. Of, of some routine, some sense of how I get physical activity, how I have family time and stuff. And, and I, I imagine that people around the country are having to do that and it's, it's, it's hard, but it's also about developing a level of sort of personal resilience in life in, in the face of crisis and hardship. And, and obviously, for most of us, I keep telling this to myself, I am being thankful for the blessing of being mainly an observer. You don't, <laughs> you really don't want to be a participant in the sense of you're in the critical care ward as a patient or all these kind of things. And so that's, yeah. that's, that's what I'm
0: I've I've heard the term adaptive recovery applied to kind of what we're doing now, right? Like, we're not going to bounce back. We're not going to, yeah. it's not going to end tomorrow, and they're going to say, okay, that was unpleasant, now back to normal, right? This is going to be a year, multi-year process, right, mm-hmm. if, depending on how dependent you are on a functioning economy. This could last a long time, and, and I think in the same process going through, like, I think a lot about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and her like five mm-hmm. stages of, like, death and dying, right? Like, mm-hmm. we are you know, denial, anger, gardening, bargaining depression and working towards acceptance on all of this. And I really take your point about how we've all started pulling in the same direction, whether it's TPM or healthcare organizations or John Krasinski, right? Like everybody is kind of taking the tools they have and applying that yep. to this. And I think that for me has been like one of the most healing things to mm-hmm. see is like, you know, I'm in healthcare, so I, I can do healthcare and that's cool. And I kind of, you know, I'm also stuck at home sometimes, in the clean pool, you know, in case they need people. Um, mm-hmm. And that is much harder to be at home than to be doing something. And, but it's great to look around and say like, everybody's got some tool, right. And everybody's using their tools for the same thing. And that mm-hmm. to me is like, even as we're isolated has been so unifying. Yeah.
1: It's inspi- it, it, it It is inspiring. And, and I would say just to, if, if I can add, I mean, this yeah. is kind of my own personal sense of things that it is i mean when i talk about like having a new normal a lot of life is how do i how do i live bravely and with dignity and by bravely i don't mean being like a badass and stuff i mean owning our fears but not being controlled by them to the extent we can all of us are controlled by our fears to to a great extent at various points as this unfolded i have tried to think about that like kind of you know cuz you think about people in the past, in the, you know, the Battle of Britain, all these kind of times from history when people had to hold up under, under very difficult circumstances. And you look at some people, you know, certain people you say, wow, that, that person didn't hold up terribly well, or that person really showed something in that moment of, of crisis. And those are times when we see ourselves, it's a revelation of ourselves and a revelation of our, of our loved ones and, and so on, that those things kind of hold up over time. Right, that, that if you, again, think of like the Battle of Britain during the Blitz, stuff like, you know, stuff like this, people kind of held up and, and, and they did amazing things. And people don't think a lot about, well, what'd you do six years later in, or 10 years later in, in, you know, 1952? Well, you're just going about your life, going to, your, going to work, having dinner and stuff like that. These are moments that we will remember about ourselves and it's worth seeing them through that light. But as horrible as it is, it's kind of an opportunity to say, like, what do I bring to the table when things are really difficult and things are scary, right? And everybody has a desire to, like, how do I protect myself? How do I you know, and, and it's, it's an opportunity to say that I did my best to, again, sort of live bravely and act with dignity, even in a tough moment.
0: At first, when this happened, I was like, well, staying home and, you know, watching Netflix, right? It's like, it's not like you're flying, you're parachuting into Nazi Germany. Right? <laughs> right, but, right. you know, as this has gone on, as we've seen the scope of what's going on here, I mean, I think our era, like this era, will be defined the way World War II was. And I think the stresses are different Mm -hmm. on our society. But I don't think we should downplay the sacrifices that everyday Americans are making to try to keep each other safe. And the the, the degree of difficulty that we're going to have in the next few years as we try to, to dig out from this. It's
1: absolutely true. And what I keep telling myself is... You know, again, keep me an observer more than a participant. But we are all participating. You know, there's relative degrees. I'm thankful to be more more observer than participant. But it really is true, and it's of necessity. But it is true that every last person in this country is at a minimum staying cooped up in their home. And and that is far, far less than a lot of people. People are losing their lives. They're losing their loved ones. They're, they're, you know, tens of millions of people are in severe financial, you know, uh, financial distress. But even those, even for people who are, you know, kind of lucky and barely affected, they're still affected. Yeah, your whole life has been sort of, you know turned upside down. And that does, that makes it a a communal, a collective effort.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure to have one of my great heroes um, on for our 100th episode and be well, be safe. And thank you again so much. Thanks so much. Josh Marshall is the founder and editor-in-chief of Talking Points Memo and the host of the Josh Marshall Podcast. Lately, I've been thinking about something Josh wrote on November 9th, 2016, but it applies just as well right now. There's a lot of fear I know. I feel it. At such a moment, I come back to a thought I've told family members at times of stress or grief. Optimism isn't principally an analysis of present reality. It's an ethic. It is not based on denial or rosy thinking. It's a moral posture towards the world we find ourselves in. If everything seems great, there's no need for optimism. The river of good news just carries you along. As Josh said when we talked, This is our battle of Britain, and Winston Churchill, who saw Britain through that, had something to say about optimism too. For myself, I am an optimist. It does not seem to be much use being anything else. And I cannot believe the human race will not find its way through the problems that confront it, although they are separated by a measureless gulf from any they've known before. Thanks for being a part of this show, whether for this episode or all 100. I hope we can keep meeting here. Bring your friends. Before we go, I want to take a moment to say goodbye, though, to Chelsea Johnson. Chelsea's been with the surgery set since the beginning, and we will miss her ingenuity, her creativity, her drive, and her good humor when I was almost always late to meetings. We welcome Bonnie Farber to the show. Talk to you soon. If you have an experience with COVID-19 you'd like to share, or a question you want answered on the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out to me on Twitter at Kohler. That's k-o-h-l-e-r. You can also send me an email at kohler at surgery.wisc.edu. If you want to hear about something other than COVID-19, our regular program is focused on the latest innovations in surgery, including interviews with the pioneers at its cutting edge. If you're new here, feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please, take a moment to rate and review the podcast. Give our Facebook page a like, and follow us on Twitter, at WISC Surgery. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson, J.P. Swenson, and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was edited by J.P. Swenson. Special thanks to Nicole Jennings, Rebecca Minter, and everyone else in our department pulling together during this adventure. Until next time, be well and stay in touch, friends. Remember, you can't stop the clock. This too shall pass.